So your uh, main area of focus is, is uh, from what I can see, terminal lucidity and, and phenomena such as such as it, mm. um, which I think is a it's a very interesting phenomenon because as of yet, as I'm aware, there's no kind of um, there's no kind of physical explanation for it, and we don't understand how it can occur, although we know it does. Um, how common is the experience of terminal lucidity? Well, first of all, regarding to what you've just said, I think we are not yet at that point that we can say we have no explanation for it. Um, I'd say there is a quite a spectrum or continuum of terminal lucidity experiences. And well, or let's maybe start this way. I define it in, as the sudden uh, re-emergence of mental clarity or lucidity um, in people who have previously been mentally disordered or whatever in a confused state of mind. So in, in, with regard to that, there can be of course big differences in terms of what happens. So the really crucial and really important and interesting cases, they refer to people who have lived, let's say with uh, destroyed brains, like the terminal stages of Alzheimer's disease, terminal stages of brain tumors and, and these types, but this is only one end of the spectrum, if you like. And also here, we really don't know what happens. So even though there is of course the, the possibility or there are indications that there's something really strange going on that should not happen if we really only apply brain chemical models, I think it's not yet time to say there's evidence for independent um, uh, life of the soul from the brain derived from terminal lucidity. Certainly, um, as you say, that there is a, a, a vast spectrum of, of these experiences. Um, the ones that say that interest me are, as you say, those that seem to take place with long-term uh, degenerative brain issues. Um, right. and I haven't really gone very far into literature, which is why I, I reached out to you. So how, how common do we find in, in these of these cases? How many do we find in the literature? Well, not many, but the, the reports are increasing. So if you look at the literature, and this is actually what I did, so there are only very few studies that really looked at the prevalence of these terminal lucidity incidences. But depending on how people defined it, or maybe also even depending on what type of patients they looked at, is it cancer um, people, is it people with uh, mental disorders? I think that the, the numbers varied between, let's say one and 10% of the general, of the population with confused states of mind. So of course this varies a lot and there's not much data available. And this is also one reason why I thought, well, we need to look at that more closely. We need to get more data. We need to document new cases as good as we can. And also to understand potential um, underpinnings also in neurological terms. This prompted now um, the National Institutes on Aging in the US to conduct large scale um, studies into mm -hmm. terminal lucidity or they prefer to call it paradoxical lucidity yeah. because they're not yet really wanting to focus too much on the end of life issue. So I think it's really a brand new emerging field of study. So any numbers that we can tell you now or have, they're very preliminary. 
but I think it's it's on one one hand it's rare it doesn't happen too often but often enough and regularly enough to really study it so that's yes. the good thing about it <laughs> great how many studies up until now have been published roughly on this subject Whew. well most of it is only literature studies and this you know, some papers of myself but i think that really studies that have looked at this phenomenon in hospitals that's only <laughs> It's it's less than five, I would say, right. maybe even three. So certainly like an that. area that needs a bit more attention in the future. Yes. Mm. And also, well, sometimes terminal lucidity was studied along with other end-of-life experiences, for example, by the research team of uh, Peter Fenwick. So they included cases of terminal lucidity in there, but did not really make a, a single study on that issue. So, but yeah, it's really not not many people who've worked on that so far. Hmm. So many people that um, are proponents for a non-local consciousness or a theory that the brain doesn't create consciousness, which in myself is included, um, mm. look at this towards or look towards this phenomena as evidence to support this. Do you think that this is a reasonable um, conclusion as as the phenomena and the understanding of it stands currently? Well. I think the, the the more drastic cases that I've just mentioned already, they have the potential to contribute to this notion. Yeah, for sure. And oh, let's 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 just give you an example. I know one case in in which a person stayed more or less, yeah, uncommunicating for five years in the terminal stage of Alzheimer's disease in her bed. Didn't get up the bed. Didn't move a lot didn't recognize anybody, not even the close family members for about five years. And then all of a sudden, this person sat up in the bed, had a normal conversation with the people present, and then basically laid back on in, in her bed. And then shortly after, she died. Do you so know roughly these three... cases? I think these are the ones, well, that point to this option that you've just been um, mentioning. Yeah. In in that case, do we know roughly how long um, after the, the period of lucidity that she did pass away? Because I know that often um, the range used is that lucidity returns weeks to even minutes before death. Yeah, in this case, I think she was awake for a considerable time, maybe even one to three hours. I need to look that up. And she died the night after. So this happened in the evening and in the morning she was dead. Hmm. So still a very relatively short time compared to the five years she was non-lucid. Yeah, of course. And this yes. is what makes cases like these intriguing. Mm -hmm. And as I said, there, there's a whole spectrum of cases. So, And I think terminal lucidity is important for mainly two reasons. The first reason is in the more or less normal cases, we might find um, some neurological underpinnings of that and might find uh, new possibilities to develop therapies. So in cases of people who suffer from dementia, we might have, find ways to bring back memories earlier than shortly before <laughs> yeah. death and may help the um, sick people communicate with their family members, with their carers and so on. So that's one possibility. And in some way, this is why, to some extent, I hope that terminal lucidity has a neurological underpinning because this is one way to develop therapies for these cases. But on the other hand, it might very well be that 
the neurological underpinning is only weak correlation to the mental state, or perhaps in really drastic cases, entirely decoupled. So in, in this case, terminal lucidity also has the potential to contribute to an enhanced understanding of human nature. And it would, and I think it does neatly tie in with uh, near-death visions, near-death experiences, and with all spectrum of other challenging <laughs> Um, phenomena documented from near-death states and also in the yeah. parapsychological literature. Mm. So on a, I suppose, a slightly more personal level, with, with your, um, I don't know how far you've gone into the literature of, of um, parapsychology, uh, parapsychology and near-death and other phenomena, um, wh what would you say is currently your belief, I suppose, on the nature of the mind versus the brain? My belief... So if you take all these things together, and I think this is what we need to do. So we should not look at near-death experiences and find explanations for them or not. And then we turn to another phenomena like near-death visions and turn to another phenomena. So we have to really integrate the evidence of all these different types of phenomena together, even reincarnation cases, mm -hmm. who I think are really, really important are. to study and some of them are really, really hard to explain in normal mm. terms. Mm. So if you really take all the evidence together, lump it together, evaluate it, and find the best explanation for them, I think that there is evidence, strong evidence, supporting the notion that consciousness is not exclusively generated by the brain chemistry. Yes. And as you say, especially the extreme cases of terminal lucidity, I think add great weight to that kind of idea. Yeah. Uh, have you ever had any, I suppose, more sceptical, I suppose, or more physicalist um, explanations put forward for those extreme cases that seem reasonable? Well, if I personally had them before I stumbled across these cases? Yeah, um, yeah the, the uh, more extreme cases that you've come across, <clears throat> which you would say would provide evidence for a non-local consciousness, have you ever come across any physical neurological explanations that seem reasonable to, to explain them? Not really. And I think so far nobody has. And this is one reason why they are being studied now in, in the US in, in particular. But in general, it is long since known that, uh, known since long, I would say, that dementia diseases imply a fluctuation of the mental clarity of patients suffering from dementia. And this even is related to the type of disease. For example, there is dementia with Lewy bodies and this is a specific type of dementia. So people with that type of disease, they have larger fluctuations with regard to their mental clarity compared to other diseases. And I think like Alzheimer's, you also have fluctuations with regard to memory access, personality, clarity, and all these things. But in all these cases, these fluctuations decrease in course of the um, development of the disease. So the longer the disease takes, the more severe the dementia and the loss of personhood becomes, the less fluctuations you'll find. So, you'll find people who say, well, we know that there are these fluctuations and maybe we can all even find neurological explanations or proposed models of 
networks of neurons firing coherently uh, and then losing this ability again and all these things. But for the really drastic cases and for the unexpected cases in which people were really dull and non-responsive for prolonged periods of time. So if they really suddenly emerge from out of that state and become clear again and have access to their memories again, recognize people again, remember their own lives again. So for that, we don't have a neurological explanation <laughs> at present. At least I have not come across, come across any. any. Mm. Yeah. Yes, and I certainly agree that the less uh, extreme cases <clears throat> of lucidity would mm. possibly warrant more a neurological explanation. Um, mm. And uh, as you say, you know, it's the more extreme cases, especially with brain uh, degenerative disease, where we know that um, towards the end, the brain is effectively broken down beyond repair. And yet... Right this lucidity still takes place which would if we were looking at a neurological explanation would have to entail either spontaneous rapid regeneration of, of neural connections which are no longer there or mm. some other form of, of um, brain physiology that we don't even know exists yet right um, yeah. and I, I've been <clears throat> um, presented with various explanations from um, I don't know if you know Gerald, Dr. Gerald Burley the anesthesiologist Burley no, but he he put forward explanations regarding pH levels and and possible things like that, which I don't understand because I, I'm not in mm -hmm. that field at all. Um, as well as other explanations, which you mentioned about brain tumors, where over time as the brain degenerates, so do the tumors, and therefore normal um, function is is resumed after the tumor is is reduced to a certain mm -hmm. amount. Which again, as you say, seems reasonable, but not within these cases that are triggered by brain degenerative conditions mm -hmm. at the end stages yeah. um, so uh, uh, we do I'd imagine have cases of, of such where the, the brain has been beyond repairable damaged if, if that makes sense there are if cases I think we have such cases yeah well we have reports and it's difficult to judge these reports but we have them and this is why it is important to study them for example I have a report that concerns a, a stroke patient and who was paralyzed, completely paralyzed before she died. But nevertheless, this person sat up in bed, was able to move again, was able to recognize apparently a deceased uh, relative again. <laughs> she raised her arms and then fell back on the cushion and died. So I think this is something that would be completely impossible from mm -hmm. a neurological mm -hmm. perspective. But we only have the report, so I don't know if it's yeah. really, See, really that, true. That, that would seem but we have these reports for sure, yeah. and we have some reports that involve Alzheimer patients, which are extremely astonishing. So the reports are there. There are reports that really challenge the neurological explanation. Mm. And your example of the stroke patient seems very interesting as well, because that would entail more than just a, a, a regaining of lucidity. If we were to use, for example, <clears throat> the belief that this is the consciousness leaving the body, mm. we've still got some kind of physical phenomena taking place there where normal function is returned not only to lucidity but also to the function of the body itself. Right. So that would, to me, say that there must be some kind of neurological basis for it because we know that in order for the physical body to work properly, the brain must be involved. Mm -hmm. So that, that kind of adds an extra level to this phenomena. Right. Um, what would you say to the skeptics or the um, debunkers or you know the, the naysayers who would say that um, 
even if we do have these cases, they're only one or two cases of extreme um, situations, and um, that effectively they they provide no evidence at all to suggest a non-physical mind. Mm. Well, I would say it's never good to approach a new topic with that mindset because we have these reports and I think it's the duty of scientists, of physicians to study them, if only for the reason to develop therapies. And if we stumble across these more drastic cases along the road, we need to really take them into account and study them again with the appropriate frame that is applicable in, for these cases. It's pretty much the same in near-death experiences. You know, when near-death experiences, they have been studied for many, many years. I think even for, for 200 years, romantic physicians were already concerned with near-death experiences. And then some other people from basically the spiritualist or the psychical researcher setting, parapsychologists studied them, but only since Raymond Moody published his groundbreaking book, the, the physicians and medical people started to recognize that there is really something interesting to study. And now this research is it's about 40 years old and we came across many fascinating cases and many challenging cases. And I think this is just the way science needs to proceed. We need to consistently point to interesting, fascinating, not yet understood phenomena and need to research them. And it's no good to say, well, there's, this is only some type of report that we should not invest further because it's a waste of time and these things cannot happen anyway. And that's not a proper mindset for a scientist, no, in my opinion. No. So what would you think of those who say that those who study near-death experiences and, and uh, various other phenomena and claim that they give evidence of, of I suppose, paranormal aspects um, are just bias and looking for evidence to support their belief and, and pseudo-scientific is the word that I often put. What do you think of those kind of um, assertions? Well, I think they're not true. I think one really needs to read the literature and one really needs to also speak to people who have near-death experiences and get some personal impressions from that. And one really needs to be open. And I think if one approaches these topics with an open mind, you'll realize that it's not pseudo-scientific stuff or some other type of nonsense. Yeah? It's, 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 yeah, it's good science, it's objective science that you can perform in the frame of the possible um, research frames because you yeah. cannot experiment on it. You can yeah. hardly replicate <laughs> these things, but you can talk to the people, you can try to verify cases, you can do that in near-death cases, near-death experiences, you can do that with the reincarnation cases, and they are very intriguing cases, and they are really very hard to explain in alternative terms without entailing whatsoever extrasensory perception and these things. And also yeah. terminal lucidity. <clears throat> I mean, what I found very intri intriguing is that terminal lucidity very often involves near-death visions. So many people who experience even also drastic terminal lucidity episodes, they have at the same time what we call a near-death experience, uh, near-death vision. They may see deceased relatives or friends. They may sit up in their bed, as I mentioned already, even raise their arms and 
really seem to welcome somebody or they seem to be picked up in all these really typical things that we know from near-death visions of healthy, no, or people who die with a healthy brain. And I think this is an important aspect of terminal CDT that should not be overlooked, that the, phenomen, the phenomenon itself is very, very similar or even perhaps identical in patients with brains that are destroyed by Alzheimer's, destroyed by brain tumors, by strokes, and by people who die with a healthy brain for other somatic reasons. And very similar to near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences and all what they report, it can happen under a great variety of different brain conditions. And that should not really be the case if it always would be determined by the underlying neurological states. And I think this is really serious and objective observation and scientific um, <laughs> data and things you can work with. Hmm. And I suppose in a way you've already answered, but I'll, I'll ask regardless because it's a common one that comes up. What, um, what of those who say all these phenomena are only able to provide us with anecdotal information and therefore unscientific um, claims? Well, I think we, we can work with anecdotal data. It, it's, it's not that anecdotal data or working with anecdotal data is unscientific. And there's also parapsychological research, psychical research since one, 200 decades has shown it is possible to, to try to verify anecdotal reports. Again, let's talk about near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences, and all these things. Reincarnation cases, you can work with it. You can go there, talk to people, test it, see if that's true or not. And you can collect data. And it's, it's no good to say just because it's not replicable, it's no science. Mm, that's yeah. not the case. Many yes, scientific disciplines work with anecdotal reports. So why can't we? That's also, it's not a convincing argument. No. I mean, I always argue, even if the majority of, of cases are anecdotal, that as soon as you have um, things such as veridical perception and third-party verified perception, it takes it well beyond the range of anecdotal only. And you yeah. begin to have some kind of objectivity in there that you can verify. Right. Um, but then you're subject to um, criticism such as um, selective memory. You know, you remember the ones that work and you forget mm. all the millions that don't. Mm. Uh, and coincidence and, and things mm. like that. Um, which yeah. to me, you know, the first, the fact that you remember the hits and, re and forget the misses, although that does take place, it only takes mm. one case, one hit to really show that there's something going on. Mm. You know, the white, or was it black swan analogy? You, know, you can say yeah. every swan's white until you see one that's black and then it's all forgotten. Or yeah. it's, all, it's all challenged. Yeah. yeah. Um, so from your own background how were you i suppose um educated and what what got you into this this area of, of research of interest well, from my own background i'm i'm a biologist and i always loved looking into unsolved aspects of biology and i, I need also to be thankful to a teacher that i had long time back at school because we had a biology teacher who taught us also to look at the unsolved riddles of life. And this is, as I see it, rather untypical because if you go to school nowadays, or even if you go to university and learn your stuff, 
you're always told how things work and you're very, you hardly come across teachers who put specific weight on things that are still unknown and where we don't know how things work. But I really like that because this is what made me curious. And so I started off looking into things that were not yet really known, starting with unsolved riddles of evolution and all these things, origin of life. And, and sooner or later, when you are concerned with topics in the realm of biology that are not really well understood, not really known, you stumble across parapsychological phenomena and if you study parapsychological phenomena, what I did, you may notice at one point that many parapsychological phenomena occur around the time somebody dies. And so one step leads to another, but I still consider myself biologist. All parapsychology and all the phenomena reported from near-death states, they, in my opinion, belong to biology, which is nothing else yeah. than the study of life. Yeah, indeed. And... and um when we say that situations occur that are paranormal or supernatural i've never liked those terms because to me they will be explained whether that means that they'll be explained by terms of um psychology or neurophysiology or in terms of a non-local mind to me they're still going to be natural explanations it's just part of nature that is as, as of yet unexplained mm-hmm. um so when people say you know it'll have a natural explanation not a supernatural and i'll say yeah i agree but Mm. not necessarily nature as we currently know it yeah you know and i think that distinction is quite a pseudo a pseudo distinction yeah um yeah so it was your your doctorate also in in biology i'd imagine yes i studied uh, the physiological response of trees to drought stress so i was I, i did my phd in forestry science and also worked a few years in there. So for a long, for a long time, I pursued my parapsychological interests in my spare time. Mm-hmm. But certainly, you know, you brought up in in the field of formal science. <clears throat> you was, I'd imagine, certainly trained with the knowledge that uh, is necessary to really combat these these folks who will say it's only non-educated or mm-hmm. gullible people who study this kind of thing. Yeah. Mm. which which is which is perfect uh did you find a lot of resistance in your research into parapsychological phenomena because i know that a lot of people consider it already nonsense or have been previously debunked by folks like james randy and Mm -hmm. and various other researchers well luckily not so in fact when i studied all these parapsychological issues or also near-death related death-related issues. People in my surroundings usually found that very <laughs> interesting and fascinating. So many biologists and forestry scientists, they, they are curious about it and keep asking me, hey, Michael, what's the news? Do you have any new things you work on? And so, so I was really pleased. So, but of course, the, the more you write and publish, you, you attract critics of that stuff that, that you write upon. So, yeah, but the criticism I received so far was rather moderate. It was written in publications, but it was actually not not much. And to some extent, I expected more resistance. But so far, it was was, was okay. Yeah, good, good. So a lot of those that are very um, 
vocal against this kind of thing have always said very strongly that honest you know true scientists never take this stuff seriously but it's nice to see that at least your colleagues as well and in, in in a practical sense do have interest in this kind of thing mm. and how yeah. it progresses and don't just dismiss yeah. it out of out of yeah. context yeah but there were some who didn't have any interest but they never really faced any aversion or or people never considered it bad or or, or accused me of doing pseudoscience and so i i never had this in my alternative professional surrounding luckily good okay um well, i can't think of much more to ask unless mm. there's anything you wanted to to add about uh, that we you think we've missed on tonal lucidity or any other kind of phenomena that's important well i may just add uh, uh, comment on what you said earlier, you mentioned that it's um, not very um, apt to talk about the supernatural. And I would really like to stress that again. So I think that any phenomena that we can observe, be it parapsychological, be it some other extraordinary experience or phenomena in near-death states whatsoever, this all belongs to nature. And so I really try to avoid words like supernatural, supernatural and all these things as much as possible, because there is nothing supernatural. Anything we can experience is always some kind of natural thing. It may occur not very often. It may not occur very predictable. It may not be repeatable, but it's still natural. And so no matter what kind of explanation we find for all these phenomena, I perfectly agree with you that it's always something natural. There's not something unnatural about these things. And I also really uh, agree with you that there are many things, and specifically things related to living, that we may not be able to, under to fully understand, because I think there is an aspect to life and to knowledge, to perception, that transcends what we can as a human being do or understand or explain with our logically trained mind. So even if we do not really know how this and this exactly works, I think it's still natural. And maybe we just have to accept that there is a layer of reality from which these phenomena arise and which we'll never be able to predictably or really 100% fully be able to explain by logical monocausal thinking. In my opinion, we need new ways of thinking, new modes of causality, new modes of causation to understand life and biological phenomena. It needs to, to go one step further with our understanding of all these things. And we need to yeah, expand our frame for explanations and step one step further away from merely logical monocausal um, yeah causa efficiency related approaches yes and i think as you say that the problem is uh with many who um bring forward logic and critical thinking skills to the mix uh, and often accuse those of us who believe in something else as not having those skills uh, is that you know that logic and critical thinking can only go as far as logic as we know it now with the information we already have which may or may not be complete anyway mm. so um 
you know you, you should implement that but we should also be open to things that go outside of current logic and current critical thought to so that we can then bring that into the ontology i suppose yeah. um so i suppose one one last question then to to wrap things up is focused on my main area of research which is life after death as you could probably guess what do you think the implications of um, these extreme cases of terminal lucidity? Because, as you say, the, the less extreme ones I don't have much interest in because they can always be mm. explained more physiologically. Uh, the um, extreme terminal lucidity cases and the other parapsychological phenomena. Uh, what, what do you think that they imply about the nature of, of life after physical death of the body? That's, of course, a difficult question. <laughs> and I would be glad if I could give you a definitive answer to it. But if we look at the, the evidence that we have from near-death experiences, from, from reincarnation cases, from mediumistic communications and all these things, classical topics of uh, survival research, what I think we can conclude is that's very different and it may be shaped by cultural, by personal, conscious, subconscious belief systems. So I really don't know what to expect. I, I think there's very, very good evidence that consciousness is not exclusively produced by brain chemistry and that some aspects of it may survive bodily death. But what happens then, especially after let's say permanent bodily death you know for example near-death experiences people always come back and so what they experience if that's something really related to an afterlife is maybe only the very very first step indeed but yeah. what comes then <clears throat> it's, it's very mm -hmm. difficult to say and if you look into the, the the people or the children who from the reincarnation cases what they tell about this intermission period it's really very different. Some say they just hang around their old place until they saw their future parents. Some went up to heaven and saw religious figures. Some, some saw other old friends and associated with others who incarnated together. So we find really a very, very large spectrum of different uh, descriptions of what happens then. And so all I can say, it, it will be very complex if it's like that, it will be very different maybe for different individuals, but I think it's it's very difficult to say something definitive about that. Yes, and I like the way that Jan Holden, Dr. Jan Holden puts, <coughs> especially because she's in near-death experience research, the way she puts things um, that we can tell, or we can reasonably conclude that from the evidence that um, the mind doesn't cease to exist immediately after death. What mm. that means and whether that's eternal as, as many of the religions and spiritual um cultures say we can't by definition have evidence for that because every 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 piece of evidence we've we've gathered are from people who have survived because they've survived and been able to tell us so we have to imply from as you say the other phenomena like reincarnation after death communication and things like that we have to then kind of create a narrative based on that kind of um yeah. that ex experience and many mm. would say that because as you say, the reports from reincarnation, intermission uh, between live states are so different between cases. Many would say, well, then clearly this is all just a, an illusion or a, or a mind-created thing. Whereas mm. I'd say you can't really conclude that. What you can conclude is that 
in some way the mind is influential over the experience, mm-hmm. whether it's creating it or whether it's just influencing a, a more objective experience, as is evidenced by the near-death experience of various cultures and religions also. Yeah. So I think it's a, a jump to say that, therefore, it's all in your head. Exactly. I don't think so. It, it's maybe not really objective, but maybe it's somehow intersubjective still. And maybe, yeah, I, I wouldn't exclude the possibility that what we think and what we do here also as a collective um, group of or culturally related individuals may shape what we yes. experience and what um, individuals from a different culture will experience then. Yes. So you may know that some people have lucid dreams. I know of some instances of people who dream together, who share the same lucid dream. And allegedly you can even train that in some mystical traditions. So I, I would not be surprised if that's something similar going on there, that people share the same dream and create the, the shared background, very similar to what happens in a shared lucid dream. Mm. That's interesting. I've never heard of that phenomena before because mm. that shouldn't happen. <laughs> <with our current understanding. laughs> shouldn't happen. So, could you get, could you go in a little bit more detail about that? Because that's new for me, and that's very interesting. Well, there's not, not so much I can tell you more, but 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 you know about lucid dreaming. It's you know the, the dreams that people become aware that they are dreaming, so they're dreaming in full consciousness, in ideal cases, and then sometimes does apparently happen that people share the same dream and you cannot even share the same dream while both dreamers or even more dreamers are in a lucid dream stage. So they kind of share a virtual intersubjective reality, which is not objective, but it's intersubjective. Yeah. Yeah. And they, in these cases, they seem to enter or share the same dream, the same dream background. And, and, and they, maybe they wake up this and... is something that also happens in near death or after after states. Mm, yeah, I don't know. Mm, mm. I, I think it's a possibility that would explain why these uh, memories of the afterlife are so different and individually and culturally tinted. Yes. So after they've had the the shared dream, they wake up and describe exactly the same details. Right. Yeah, see that's interesting because, but by our current understanding, that that really shouldn't happen, <laughs> and that no. would be and that would be suggestive that there is a vital part of, I suppose, of mind that is connected in some way at a much deeper level, exactly, rather than just individual brains creating individual subjective experience. Yes. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Seeking Eye Life Exploration Podcast. If you did and would like to continue following my research, please consider subscribing to my YouTube channel and following the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify and other podcast providers. You can also join our Facebook discussion group. You can find the link to this and other Seeking Eye online profiles at seeking-eye.com. Thank you.